Hi, I'm Michael O'Connell, host of the It's All Journalism podcast. For more than a decade, It's All Journalism has produced a weekly podcast featuring interviews with working journalists, educators, and media thought leaders, all discussing the ever-changing media landscape. We've covered a wide range of topics such as solutions to journalism, mental health in the newsroom, local news startups, investigative reporting, online harassment, and new technology. Over the years, It's All Journalism partnerships have played important roles in expanding our reach and ensuring that we are able to continue producing our weekly podcast series. We are currently seeking new partners to help us keep this podcast going. If you believe in It's All Journalism's mission, if you want to see these conversations continue, go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the partnerships link and find out how we can share your company or organization's good work with a wider audience. Maybe we can produce a podcast series for you or host your next webinar. The It's All Journalism team is ready to spotlight your organization's good work and keep these important conversations going. Go to itsalljournalism.com, click on the partnerships link, and let's collaborate. And now, here's our latest episode. They want to hear that sound of gunshots from the cell phone video of the latest, you know, mass shooting. I couldn't find that research. And what I sort of landed on is that I really think that we do a lot of what we do in journalism, and especially when it comes to crime reporting, because it's just the way it's always been done. As we look at how to make the next journalism more sustainable, diverse, equitable, and inclusive, let's also take a look at how we cover traumatic events and the way our choices impact victims, survivors, and the reporters themselves. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Tamara Cherry is a former crime reporter for CTV television in Canada and also the Toronto Star, which makes her probably the best person to write about the impact of media on trauma victims and of trauma on journalists. Tamara, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's my pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you here. Always love having somebody from our, our, our neighbors to the north. <laughs> we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about you and your book and trauma. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you, you know, what got you interested in becoming a reporter and a crime reporter in particular? It was definitely not something that I set out to do right from the beginning. In fact, going way back, I was originally in pre-pharmacy school. And then after a couple of years of that, I was like, I don't know what I want to do. This isn't for me. Went to Vancouver, did some soul searching and my dad said, well, you like to write and you like to talk to people going to journalism school. And I was like, yes, I'm going to go write for a snowboarding magazine. So that's what I thought that I was going to do. Got into journalism school. And then my very first internship at the Regina Leader Post here in Saskatchewan, Canada, on my, I think it was my third day, they sent me to interview this author from New York whose father had died from Alzheimer's disease. And she had written a book about it. And I sat there interviewing her for like 40 minutes before she was going to speak at this luncheon. And by the end of it, she was crying. I was crying. And that was the story that sort of made me fall in love with telling stories that can make people feel something that make people care about something. But still then I was, you know, a general assignment reporter bounced from there to the Calgary Herald where I, I did some work on the weekends on the cop desk, listening to the scanners and stuff like that. But it was really when I got to the Toronto Star and in their radio room, which is really like a common place for journalists to start their career in Toronto. In this radio room, you're surrounded by police, fire and ambulance scanners. It is a 24 hour a day 
job, you know, rotated through, you know, eight hour shifts and you're monitoring other media, you're listening to the scanners, you're writing obituaries, you are, you know, just doing a little bit of everything, filing to the web, filing to the paper, and you have to do it all from the newsroom. You can't leave the newsroom. So it, it was a really interesting challenge and I really took to it and my supervisors saw something in me. And then the following summer, when one of their crime reporters went on sick leave, one of the assignment editors said, Hey, you want to come, you want to come do this officially, like get out of the office. And then from there, I went to the Toronto sun and I was one of their three crime reporters, which is sort of like the tabloidy type paper in Toronto. I worked there for a few years, did a lot of work covering human trafficking, like during a time that a lot of people weren't talking about it. We're going back to like 2008 to 2010. Yeah, by then I was like firmly entrenched in the crime beat. And then when the the great legendary crime reporter of CFTO News at CTV News Toronto announced his retirement, Jim Junkin, with the deep voice. He'd been there for like 40 years. He was a friend of mine from the field. When he announced his retirement, I was standing on the side of a road where a body had just been found. And my colleague friend from CTV said, you should come work for us. Jim's retiring. I said, you'd never catch me in front of a camera. No way. I'm a print reporter through and through. And he said, Tamara, you're already doing it. Just come and do it right. And sure enough, I had my little tripod there with my little camera because by that point, print journalists were having to do everything. And so I thought on it and and that brought me to television and as the CTV Toronto crime specialist. And I was there for about a decade. When they brought you in, did they give you any training or was it sort of just jump into the pool? I told them from the beginning, I don't know anything about TV. I took the one mandatory broadcast class when I was in journalism school. So you're going to have to teach me everything. To this day, I still don't know what all of the acronyms are. I know like VO, voiceover. I don't know what VTR stands for. I don't know any of that stuff. I went there as a print reporter, but it's interesting because the very first day that I was supposed to be, like after filling out all my HR paperwork, that I was supposed to be shadowing one of their reporters to see how the TV business is done. That morning at like six o'clock in the morning, my phone rang and it was a camera guy who I was friends with. And he said, Tamara, a police officer has been rushed to hospital go to St. Mike's hospital, tell the office you're going there. And I got up and I went and they put me on camera that day. A police officer was killed in the line of duty. And it was not the way that I thought that I'd be starting my television career because those are among the most difficult stories to do as, as a crime reporter. But yeah, basically they just said, I said, I don't know what I'm doing. They said, just go in front of the camera and talk. So I had my notepad which you don't see very often in television news. I had my notepad and I kept referring to it and kind of looking back and forth. And they said, hey, we we like how you did that. You know, you're looking at your notepad. I'm like, well, I, I don't want to misquote these people. So yeah, anyway, so that was an interesting start in television world for sure. So now I didn't mention your book, which is one of the reasons we're talking, uh, The Trauma Beat, A Case for Rethinking the Business of Bad News. What inspired you to write it? Well, I didn't initially set out to write a book, just as I didn't initially set out to be a television reporter. That's how things go in my life. So I left journalism in late 2019 to launch my company, Pickup Communications. And I don't know about you, Michael, but throughout my journalism career, a pickup is what we called the art, for lack of a better term, of going out and getting a picture of the latest homicide victim, traffic fatality victim, and hopefully a, an interview with their grieving family members. So I launched launched this PR firm 
to support trauma survivors and relevant stakeholders. And through that lens, basically during the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic, I launched a research project examining the impact of the media on trauma survivors. And then ultimately I'd expand it to examine also the impact of trauma on members of the media. And that was basically just like one thing on my long list of things I wanted to do. And part of the reason I wanted to do that was just going back many years when I was a crime reporter, like back when I was working at the Toronto Sun, I was asked to help develop a victimology program for a local college just outside of Toronto. And then they asked me to develop a course called Victims and the Impact of the Media and to instruct that course. And when I was looking for research into the impact of media on crime victims and survivors, I found next to nothing. There was very little research that was driven by the voices of survivors. So I wanted to create something like that. So I started my research project in May 2020. And it started with a survey for survivors of homicides and traffic fatalities, because as a crime reporter, those were the survivors that I was most likely to go, you know, knocking on their doors. And it expanded just by, you know, virtue of conversations I was having. Hey, you should talk to this person, talk to this person and survivors approaching me saying, hey, create a survey for us. So it expanded to include survivors of homicides, traffic fatalities, sexual violence, mass violence, human trafficking. And I had one family of a missing person who is presumed homicide victim. And then also a survey for journalists who cover trauma. And from the very first survey that I got back, which was from a homicide survivor in Detroit, whose husband was the victim of a very sensational homicide back in the 80s. That very first survey, looking at the responses, I knew I wanted to shout this from the rooftops. You know, Michael, as a journalist, when you have something, you got to shout, you want to shout it to the world, right? So I wasn't thinking book immediately, but as more and more came in, I mean, I was working on a research paper. I did publish a peer-reviewed research paper up here in Canada in, in one of the journals we have. And then there was just so much. And there was so much self-reflection that happened through this process that as I was confronted by all of the ways that I got things wrong as a crime reporter, when I thought I was getting them right, when I thought that my very good intentions were good enough, that it was just like naturally a book. Because for me, the book became something where it's like, I would love for this to be mandatory reading in every journalism school and every victimology program. But even more so, like I wanted to create something that would appeal to the broader public so people could question, like, what is the journalism we want versus what is the journalism that we need? And, you know, maybe think of a better path forward through that conversation. Before we turn on the mics, you mentioned that you, you listened to this podcast. Did you hear the interview we did with Dr. Jessica Beard, the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting? I mean, a lot of what you said reminded me of that. She, just to remind everybody, she was an emergency room doctor. And through that experience, she began to find out from many victims of gun violence that either, you know, A, they didn't know that there had been a story written about them and B, that the story didn't really kind of reflect the reality of the victim. That was really fascinating listening to that conversation. And honestly, Michael, I reached out to Dr. Beard almost immediately after I finished that podcast because it was it was so in line with my thinking, but also because in her research, she was talking to a lot of people who had been shot and survived my research focused on a lot of the the survivors, so the next of kin after the cases where somebody didn't survive. And something I find really interesting about crime reporting is quite often we don't talk about 
these cases unless the people die. So it's like, oh, he survived. Okay, so I'll cover this story instead of that one. You know, as a crime reporter, it's I'm either doing this story or that story. Well, that guy survived. So not to mention the fact that he's going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, the PTSD that he's suffering. Like, we don't do a good job of covering these stories thoroughly. And Dr. Beard touched on that pretty well. Being a, a local reporter, I write my share, fair share of crime stories. And I'm guilty of lo a lot of what Dr. Beard was talking about, which is, you know, I'm just, you know, rewriting police stuff, not putting some, you know, I'm doing bad things, I know, and I need to fix it. But I don't know why that is with reporters. I think part of it is, you know, unfortunately, in the environment that we're in, clickability. People want to, you know, oh, there's a there's a homicide in my neighborhood. Oh, there's, you know, there's some cr violent crime that happened, you know, in town. What can I find out about that? I don't know, though. Like, it's interesting, Michael, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but it's interesting to hear you say, I don't know, because this is something I really grappled with. Like, while I was doing my research and writing my book, we don't have any research. At least I couldn't find anything on, are people more likely to click into a story you know, for example, if they see this thumbnail image or are they more likely to click into a story because there's a shooting or whatever, or are they more likely if it's a thoughtful piece of journalism? Like, I would love to see the research, for example, that shows that people want to see body bags on TV, for example, or that they they want to hear that sound of gunshots from the cell phone video of the latest, you know, mass shooting. I couldn't find that research. And what I sort of landed on is that I really think that we do a lot of what we do in journalism, and especially when it comes to crime reporting, because it's just the way it's always been done. Right. And also, it's a sort of a shake and bake story. The victim is defined. You get the police side of the, you know, the equation. And if you don't make an effort to talk to any of the victims, the family victims or the victim themselves, then that's really kind of an incomplete story, which was something that Dr. Beard talked a lot about. But anyway, now you talked about when you were researching this book. Well, first of all, how many people did you end up talking to? So I surveyed and or interviewed more than 100 trauma survivors across Canada and the United States and more than two dozen journalists in total. So I didn't break it down by numbers, but a lot of those were surveys. But a lot of them I went back and we had more fulsome conversations. And there's also people in my book who never filled out a survey who it was just straight on interviews. Lots of people, lot, definitely the voices of more than 100 survivors in that book. Now, you mentioned that as you're writing the book or you're talking to the people, the victims or survivors, it sparked a lot of self-reflection. What do you mean by that? What was it sparking in you? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's like every survey I got back where people were talking about negative impacts in the media, I had done those things. So contacting people in the immediate aftermath like, you know, within the first 24 hours of them learning the most devastating news of their life, I was there knocking on their door, not leaving them alone, you know, and, and we do these things. We have ways as reporters to sort of cajole people into interviews. And we think, we, again, we have the best of intentions. If we just get that grieving mother on TV, then, you know, the girlfriend who saw her boyfriend stash the gun will call in a Crime Stoppers tip or whatever. Or, you know, we tell them, if you just come out and talk to us just for two minutes will all go away. And how awful is that? You know, like we, we should just go away if they want us to go away. Or, you know, something I heard over and over again, showing body bags in the newspaper, on the web, on TV. That's something I did all the time. As a television reporter, we're illustrating 
you know, we're writing to pictures for me, what better way to illustrate that somebody was dead than to show the body removal shot. You know, that was the shot that we waited out in the, in the rain for and shivered in the cold for you got to get the body shot, got to get the body shot. Turns out that's very harmful doing things like reaching out to people on social media again, after they've said not to, and like, there's just, there were so many things, Michael, where I was like, this is how I operated all the time. The biggest one though, is that reaching out just in the immediate aftermath when the cloud of shock is so thick. And the more I researched the impact of trauma on the brain, I came to realize that many times these people that I was reaching out to, like they were in no state to even make an informed decision as to whether they wanted to talk to me. And I was just there and it was it was very exploitive what I was doing. It was awful. And I didn't even consider the fact that, you know, maybe months down the road, these people would reflect back and think like, oh my God, why did they take advantage of me? Why wasn't anybody supporting me? That's what I was hearing from survivors. There were just so many things. And moral injury is something that I've looked at a lot into and I've spoken a lot about and I wrote about in my book and I, I'd never heard of until a few years ago. But I know I suffered moral injury on the job with every door I had to knock on when I felt like in my gut, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. But the moral injury that I suffered too, just through this research project was immense as I came to terms with like all these ways that I caused harm. It was really interesting because I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of stories I wrote over the course of my career about trauma survivors, where it was just like, you know, your fingers are flying across the keyboard, blah, 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 you send it off and you just go and you rinse and repeat the next day. This one, like this book, the hardest part for me was after I was done writing the book and I was going to be reaching out to each of these survivors to ask them if they wanted to read what I'd written before I sent it off to my editor for the first round of editing. And the weight of responsibility that I felt to get it right for them was so crushing and the weight of responsibility to not cause further harm. Because by that point, through all my research, I was so hyper aware of how very easy it is to cause harm through the work we do through taking these stories and how much responsibility we have in holding on to these people's stories that I was so afraid of causing further harm to the point that I'm like, is this even worth it? Why am I doing this? What if I hurt people? It all worked out, but my perspective completely changed through this project. As you were saying that, it, it, it triggered me to reflect back to when I was a community reporter at a weekly paper, then became an editor and was sending re reporters out on stories like this. And two instances sort of stand out to me. One was a reporter, you know, reaching out to a mother whose daughter had, high school daughter had died in a car accident. And the conversation she ended up having with the mother, and actually she'd gone to the home, you know, after making that contact, and they went to the, her daughter's bedroom and the mother talked about, you know, with the impact on her life. So for, for me, a lot of the perspective at that time was that we were in, in a way we were doing a service. It would have been different if we just did the car accident, but by going to talk to the parent and reflecting on who that person was, it was an opportunity to help them grieve. And then another one, I think, think that the reporter reached out to the family. I don't, I don't quite remember all the circumstances around, but she showed up at the funeral or the, the wake. And as soon as she identified herself, the, the widow just, just opened up on her and just, you know, get out of here, screamed at her. 
And, you know, eventually some of her children came out and, you know, told the reporter a few things and the reporter came home. Those are the type of the hardest types of stories to do. But, you know, they can be valuable, I think. But to your point, we don't have a guidebook for that. A lot of it is is hit or miss. I think talking about a, a high school girl's who she was and what she dreamed about and what she did. I remember there was a, the mother was showing her this whiteboard and her daughter would write messages to herself, like, you know, real positive sort of things. I mean, we do that. We write that story differently than we write the story about the actual incident. Strictly, if that was, I'm writing this down and I'm handing it to you and it's not going to be published anywhere. I did that for you, but actually you're there doing it for other people. You know, ultimately, you know, you talk about exploitation at some level that's exploitive. Here's the thing. There is value to that. And I'm so happy that you brought that up about the high school traffic fatality victim, Michael, because I have had many doors slapped in my face. But I also there's one homicide I often think back at where I was out of town when the actual homicide happened. So a colleague of mine had done the initial story, had not talked to the family. And then there was an arrest, an arrest in the case about a month later when I was back. So I said, oh, we haven't talked to this family. I'm going to go knock on their doors. And when I got there, they they were saying, why weren't you at the funeral? You need to show people what happened. You need to show the." And they were showing me cell phone videos of the body in the casket. You need to put this on the news, you know? So there are people that really do want to talk. Or and and I agree that it can, or need to, or, and, and I agree that it can be cathartic. I've had many people who I've, I've called up and they've just cried into the phone for 10 minutes. Not even enough for me to get one quote from them. And then they've hung up the phone and they've just, you know, I do think that it's valuable for, for many survivors to be able to talk to somebody who's not in it, who's not like in that circle of grief. The problem is the system is not set up in a way for us to do it right. So I talk a lot about how journalism needs to change, but I also talk a lot about how investigators, victim service providers, we all need to work together to do a better job so that as a journalist, I'm not like, oh, cold calling these people or knocking on their doors. There should be somebody that I can call to say, does this family want to talk? Has somebody spoken to them about the media? There needs to be that barrier there that gives that survivor the opportunity to say no if they want to say no. Something I learned is a lot of survivors will just agree to an interview because, A, they don't know that they can say no or they don't want to be rude. You know, they're trying to be polite, which is just crazy when you think of it, you know, but it's what happens. And then we end up kind of taking advantage of that. Like, oh, they were talking at the time. So I'm sure they'll want to talk to us when there's an arrest. And I'm sure they want to talk to us at the one year anniversary and the 10 year anniversary and so on and so on. But there is certainly value. And, and I think that these stories are very important. I should also point out that while I talk a lot about the impact, negative impacts of the media, there were definitely positive impacts that came out through my research, though far fewer. And one of them was one of the top positives was the ability to share their loved one's story, you know, or the ability to affect change. So if they're wanting to advocate against gun violence or parole or whatever, you know, there are positives, but the negatives, especially in the immediate aftermath, most survivors in my research were, were likely to have had a negative first experience with the media if they were contacted in the immediate aftermath, which many of them were. And even though, you know, most of them have a negative experience, most of them are contacted in the first 72 hours 
you know, most of them have no prior experience with the media. They don't know how it works. They don't know that if they talk to you for a half an hour, you know, you might get two quotes in the paper or it'll be, you know, a 10 inch story or like they're expecting this big thing that is as big as their loved one's life. Or if they're talking to me, a TV reporter, and I'm in their house for like an hour, they don't understand that unless I explain it to them, which I never did really, that there's only going to be like two clips and it's probably going to be the ones of them crying even though a lot of the interview, they weren't crying, you know, like there's so many ways we need to do a better job, but it really is everybody needing to come to the table and work together. It's so important. Also thinking about an experience I had at the same community newspaper, which is something that almost never happens is out of the blue, I got a call from a mother whose daughter committed suicide and she wanted me to write a story. And of course the thing is, you know, the police aren't going to talk about a suicide. They're not going to tell you that a, some, a victim died by suicide most of the time, very rare occasions they do, but not usually because they respect the privacy of the the victim. And I was surprised, you know, this is probably weeks after it had occurred and it had occurred on a, like a school trip. You know, as soon as we published the story, you know, where the mother talked about her daughter's life and this, that, and the other thing, I get a call from the school system and they're like, you know, this type of stuff only sort of in a way for many young people it shows that somebody's being remembered that through suicide, that they're, they see that as a positive thing, you know, that they're not loved or they're hurt or whatever. At least if I die, then maybe there'll be a newspaper article. People will he have heard my, my suffering. And that's a perspective that I had never even considered. Anyway, that's related, but not a hundred percent related, but it's the same sort of thing. It is related. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I might be thinking of a different one of your conversations, but I think it was Dr. Jessica Beard that pointed out the fact that, you know, we have, or maybe you pointed out the fact that we have so much research on the impact of reporting on suicides and we have such rigorous policies in so many newsrooms. I know the newsrooms that I, I worked in, you don't report on suicide because statistically speaking, if you report on suicides, then there's going to be more people who who died by suicide or you don't report on the method of suicide because then that it's like giving people ideas or whatever. And we've abided by those for so many years, but we don't have policies that guide us on how we report on other violent deaths and grief and all of this stuff and the negative impacts that come from that. So, I mean, it's one of those things that I'm trying to change, obviously. If you had a magic wand, what would you do? A magic wand? I mean, every homicide survivor, mass violence survivor, traffic fatality survivor, anybody who whose case could potentially be covered by the media would have somebody there supporting them with the media, number one. And that person would act as a liaison between that victim or survivor and members of the media. So the system that I envision, and it's what I do in, in my work, but at a very, very tiny scale, because I am one woman doing this work, you know, is it is about supporting that survivor for the benefit of all stakeholders. You know, like I said, as a journalist, I would have loved if there was somebody that I could call. Also, I recognize now that having a more thoughtful process, you get a better story. You know, you're not dealing with trauma brain in the same way that you would be if you're taking somebody off guard or if you're not sharing a list of questions or you're not showing them the story ahead of time, that sort of thing. Like, so you actually get a better, more factual story if you do things in a trauma-informed way. But my magic wand, number one, would be the, the infrastructure being in place where there is somebody, for me, the journalist, to call to say, is this family talking? No, they're not. Are they going to be putting out a statement? Yeah. 
Okay. What time, when can we expect it? So I can go tell my boss, oh, okay, they're not talking, but they're going to be putting out a statement by like two 30 this afternoon. So let's just sit tight. So then my boss is not sending me to go sit outside their home, knock on the door, go up there with my microphone because there's another news truck that just showed up and they're doing the same thing. So that is the number one thing. And also with that is training for every journalism student to learn about trauma. I think this is something everybody in the world should be learning. If we all knew more about trauma, I think we'd be in a better place. Journalism students and journalists, no matter what stage of the career you're at, learn about trauma and the impact that it has on the brain and the impact that our work has on survivors. Because I don't know about you, Michael, but virtually every journalist I worked with in the field signed up for this job because they wanted to make a positive impact in the world, because they wanted to help people. You know, even through that objective lens and yada, 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 they didn't want to cause harm. I always had a personal code to not make the most horrible day of somebody's life any more horrible and to hopefully make it a bit better. Then to find out that all these routine things that I was doing were actually making it more horrible, it was pretty devastating. So I think that journalists, if they just had the know-how and the tools to do things right, they would not, I think, I know because journalists tell me this, they would prefer to do it the right way. So training and the collaborative infrastructure would be the, the two top things. One of the things we haven't talked about though, is the effect of trauma on the journalist who's covering sometimes very traumatic events, not necessarily like an individual homicide or a car accident or something like that. You know, maybe there's been a mass shooting. Maybe there's a fire where many people were killed. Wait, 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 wait. Yes, necessarily a single homicide. Yes, okay. necessarily a traffic fatality. I think that is one of the biggest misconceptions. Okay. When I was a reporter, I can recall two times that I ever got an email from the big bosses reminding me of the employee assistance program. Both of them were sent to the entire newsroom. Both of them were after mass casualty events that you would think are the most traumatic. What was actually the hardest for me, one of those I didn't even cover. I was out of town, but I still got the email. One of them I did cover. And yes, it was a difficult story. But what was the hardest for me is the repeated trauma exposures over the years. And that is what I don't think we do a good job of recognizing because we in the media are so used to quantifying bad things in terms of numbers. We do it all the time with mass shootings. Like, oh, this one is the worst. And then, oh, now there's more, more dead in this and this is worse. The single homicides, though, the vicarious trauma that journalists suffer, I know I suffered over the years, it can compound and compound to the point of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's number one. We need to pay attention to that. I'm sorry to cut you off with that. I don't know if you had a question. That, but it's no, the, the point was, well, but you pretty much elaborated in the direction that I was going about, you know, a mass shooting versus an, an individual incident. But the cumulative effect and for editors management to recognize that the, the mental well-being of their reporters needs to be sort of front and center because a lot of the stuff we do we put ourselves you know and there are th times that we put ourselves into to danger in the story that we cover you know i'm much older than you but you know i lived in an era and i think there's still a lot of it around where journalists put up with a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. because that's just our job and exactly. we, we never think of and management is happy to support that because that gets people you know that gets the work done they don't have to try to think about 
providing some sort of mental health support. So a long time ago, we had a couple of people on the podcast talking about this sort of new phenomena of like journalists who are working out of an office and are getting like, you know, videos from war zones, really traumatic imagery. They have to go through that every day. And at that point, they recognize, oh, well, this is a really a problem because people get traumatized. <laughs> My mouth's not working today. By just the, the relentless, you know, violence that they're witnessing, they're not there, but they're seeing the imagery and that has definitely has an impact. So what do you want to do next? You've written this book. Oh, actually, you're doing a podcast. Tell me about that. Right, right. I just want to touch on something quickly, though, that what you were talking about, like, in research, it's been referred to as user-generated content. Like when you think about the editors having to go over this video, cell phone video, stuff like that, we see it a lot of times with mass violence. And like you said, from war zones and stuff like that. And the fact that we need to create, you know, make supports available. The first thing we need to do is recognize the harm that that does cause and that the harm that all this stuff causes. Because as a journalist, I was very good at my job and I would just plow through and you know, I was celebrated as a very good crime reporter. People were upset when I chose to leave the industry because they, you know, I was a good writer. I could connect with people, all of these things. And I, I did a good job. And I was, I was in this cycle of, like I said earlier, rinse and repeating, rinse and repeating. I never recognized the impact the job had on me really until I stepped away from it, whether it was when I went on maternity leave you know, I had a few kids or if I'd go on vacation, I would, these little things would bubble up. And I want to mention this, Michael, because I, I'm sure there's journalists who are listening, who can relate to a lot of what I'm saying, where, you know, what I step away from the office for a period of time, for whatever reason. And I would turn on the news and see a story about say a child, a pedestrian struck and killed. And it would be a story that I would covered myself a million times and gotten through just fine, quote unquote. And I would be sobbing watching this sobbing like what is wrong with me i'm not even covering the story and i'm like sobbing sobbing and i started like noticing these little things you know there was my second maternity leave i went on i was having these you know being bombarded by thoughts of you know some of the stories that i covered and stuff like that and it was always when i stepped away when i was in it i seemed quote unquote fine i would be crying when i'd be writing my script sometimes i always seemed fine but i wasn't okay and it wasn't until I left and I talk about this in the book, and it was actually during my research project that everything came crashing down and I hit my rock bottom and it was like time to get help and, and all of this stuff. But if somebody would have talked to me about it at the beginning, then I would have been able to recognize what was happening to me because during the course of writing my book, I went back and I read like my journals that I kept from early in my career as a young reporter. I was like 20, 21 years old and I was writing things like, is it weird that I think about my own death so often? Or how different would I be had I not chosen journalism? And I had a series of entries that were along these lines. It was really interesting for me looking back, like with the perspective I have now. And then like between 2006 and 2008, I had all this. And then I just stopped writing my journal. I never wrote in my journal ever again, but I went on to do this career for years and years and years, you know? So I just... I just want to drive home the point of how important it is to learn about that, but also something I always tell journalists because newsrooms are starting to talk about mental wellness and self-care and stuff like that. And I applaud them for it. But what I always say is you cannot adequately take care of yourself unless you're taking care of the people you're reporting on because you'll suffer moral injury and 
as much vicarious trauma as I've suffered from the job, I've spent more money on therapy on moral injury than I have on vicarious trauma. So that's number one. Number two. Okay. So you, you were just asking me at the podcast, I want to continue these conversations. So like I said, I had this immense sense of responsibility to get the book right for all the survivors and journalists whose stories are shared in its pages. And the podcast is sort of an extension of that. I've recorded all of these conversations over Zoom with survivors and journalists and all over Canada and the United States. And it's about teaching people about trauma and the media and all of the often ugly ways that the two intersect. And it's about thinking about ideas for how we can do things better. And even though I've done so much research in this and, you know, all this stuff, even though some of these people are in my research that ended up in the book, having these conversations with them, I'm still learning things. So I'm hoping that journalists listen to the podcast. I hope that victim service providers listen to the podcast. I hope that investigators listen to the podcast and just members of the public, because we all like as humanity, we get so awkward around death and trauma and we don't know the right things to say. And as a result, we really isolate victims and survivors and rather than helping them really heal. And I think that that's what like being a human being is all about, like being there for each other and being good and helping each other through hard times. So I just feel like the more we can learn about trauma and the way that it presents itself, the better off we'll be for it. So it's, yeah, it's weekly conversations. New episodes drop every Monday. It's called the Trauma Beat Podcast. Got the Trauma Beat book and now the Trauma Beat Podcast. And it's available wherever you get your podcasts. You can watch the episodes on YouTube too. Well, that sounds great. And I have not listened to it yet. I've watched it yet. I will do that. It's been a fascinating conversation. The Trauma Beat, a case for rethinking the business of bad news. Tamara, thanks for coming on the podcast. Michael, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Bolevsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.